to everyone here with us here in person, those who are watching uh, our streaming online or watching at a later time. It is good to be together. It is good to come to, um, to God's Word together, and in it, God meets with us here uh, as the Word is proclaimed, as we hear it, and He does a work in our hearts. What a joy. What a joy that that is. How kind and gracious of God that he doesn't just leave us to ourselves to figure this out. He's like, it's not working us like even right now. So let's, uh, let's, let's ask God to be at work with, uh, in us uh, right now as we come to his word. God, we thank you for the time that we get to spend here together. We ask that you would help us, that you be with the preaching and the hearing, the receiving, the believing, the trusting, the clinging to your word, that you would help um, and all of these ways to your glory and to our good. God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we started a series in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, where we're asking the question, why are we here? And we started last week at verse 10 for that answer. And that answer is four good works. Four good works. We took some time to explain what we meant by four good works, that we would live our lives our redeemed, rescued lives for God and His glory. That we would be magnifying the grace of God to the glory of God. This week we're going to start going back, uh, beginning at the start of our chapter in Ephesians 2, to explore the challenges and the hows of living out our life, making much of the grace of God for the glory of God. So if you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Each week we're going to read verses 1 through 10. It's one of the most incredible passages in all of the Bible, and we're going to read it each time, even though we're going to just focus in on a few of the verses per week. So let's read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. What a passage. We're going to consider verses 1 through 3 today. We're created for good works, ultimately redeemed for good works. Why can't we do it? 
It's important that we consider that. And so we're going to look at those three verses that are hard to hear and read. As we do so, I want us to think about something that's a bit of a cultural phenomena and fascination that we have in our day. And that's with zombie movies. Zombie shows, in fact, you know, this is the Sunday before Halloween, so it feels very fitting. I didn't purposefully line it like this, but it feels right to be talking about zombies today. However, because of that phenomenon and fascination, we have an idea what it might mean to be the walking dead. The mindless, lifeless, insatiable drive to consume. While zombie movies and shows are given to gratuitous displays of that insatiable pursuit of their walking dead, their zombies, however, can definitely serve for us a biblical metaphor of the spiritual dead. To be spiritually walking dead is to have an insatiable desire to consume, to consume the things the flesh wants, to consume what the world so easily provides. In the opening description in Ephesians chapter 2, shows the grittiness, the, the realness, the rawness of spiritual deadness. It's a picture of that raw reality of the walking dead. And we need to understand this. We need to understand this problem of spiritual deadness if we have any hope, and if we want any hope at all, to live for good works. Now, if you missed last week, as I've already stated, please Please know that we began this series answering the question, why are we here? And we've looked at these, we're looking at these 10 verses to shape our answer. And the culminating answer is that we are redeemed for good works. We're redeemed to showcase God's grace for God's glory. That's why we are here, to live for God and to live for His glory And the rest of this series is going to be spent on the how, which leads us really to tackle with our main obstacle, and that obstacle is sin. We can't because of sin. We can't live for God's glory because of sin. And so to think through this together, it's not the most creative outline, but hopefully helpful. (laughs) Why can't we, or excuse me, why we can't live for God's glory should cause us to take two things very seriously. Number one, it should cause us to take sin seriously. The fact that we will always struggle and and fail and flub in living for God's glory, making much of God's grace, should cause us then to take sin very seriously. So hopefully, as we consider what is being said here in the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, will spur us on to take this thing, sin, seriously. Secondly, and this is where the creativity ran out, we are to take Christ even more seriously. So however you write notes, if you're writing notes, put the even more in all caps. Underline it. Highlight it if you brought your highlighter. Take Christ even more seriously. So let's dig into that together. First, 
Why we can't live for God's glory should cause us to take sin seriously. Take sin seriously. In our passage, in our three verses, we get a picture of what spiritually dead, spiritually walking dead looks like. And there are four main things that are stated here that are, that are sh- shock us, should be horrifying, more horrifying than any horror movie you could watch over Halloween weekend. And I mean that, like this is scary stuff of what is described here, this kind of thing that lurks around in our hearts. That once we once lived for those who have been redeemed, but yet its, its vestiges still linger around. So let's take this very seriously so that we can then move into that second point and take Christ even more seriously. Four things the spiritual walking dead look like. Number one, separation. Separation. The walking dead are, uh, have separation in their lives. That means they are separated from God. When the Bible speaks of death in the ultimate sense, it's speaking of it from the perspective of being separated from God, to be without God. The spiritual walking dead are without God. And this separation is the worst possible place that anyone could ever live in. To live without God, far from God, with no God, to be separated in this way is the worst. If you would, just cast your eye down to chapter 2, verse 12. And we find in that section, describing the one who would be separated from God as having no hope and without God in the world. No hope. No lasting, ultimate, forever hope. None. Any kind of hope would be temporal and earthbound. The hope of a comfortable life. The hope that your kids just kind of make it and, and have sustainable careers. The hope of generally good health. But that's it. And anybody who ever lives knows that those are very fleeting things to put your hope in. So to be without God is to be without hope. To be spiritual walking dead is to have no hope, no God. What's the first thing that we find here? They were dead, separated from God. Secondly, what we find is active rebellion. First description of the walking dead is separation. The second description is active rebellion, walking dead. There's a living component to their deadness, if you will. First, we see it described as trespasses and sins. Trespasses and sins refer to the individual acts of sin. The actual sinning in thought, in word, in deed, in attitude, actually sinning. And sinning is is a revolt against God, His character, His worth, His works, His ways, and His word. To sin is to reject that to rebel against it, to act as if that God doesn't exist. It is going against His character, who He is, His worth, His glory and holiness, His ways, His works, and His word. It's no light thing. 
It is an, it's a serious offense against God. And sin is mad. Forgive me for the cheesy uh, acronym, but sin is mad. It is many, always, daily. There's no way around it. You can't domesticate it to keep it corralled. There's no flattening the curve of sin. It just keeps going. It is a virus in the soul. And no medicine apart from the gospel can reach it. We cannot take that lightly. We must take that serious. And these trespasses and sins, these offenses against God's character, worth, works, word, ways, these were what were once walked in. If you remember from last week, we we said that Paul uses the word walk as a metaphor for the manner of living, your lifestyle, the way that you go about living out your life. And so he uses the word walk to capture that. Here he's saying that the spiritually dead are walking dead. That their manner of living, their very manner of living, not just simply deeds and actions, but the whole scope of the manner of living of the spiritual walking dead is in active rebellion against God. This is serious, weighty, heavy. And the aim of life as a spiritual zombie then is to feed on that which brings death. The aim of life as a spiritual zombie is to feed on that which brings death. So it is separation from God. It is active rebellion against God. And if it couldn't get worse, it does. <laughs> Number three, the third thing that we see here describing the spiritually walking dead is not only separation and not only active rebellion, but spiritual walking dead are in captivity. They're in captivity. They're under the chains, if you will, of something else. And think of this captivity as Two concentric circles, a smaller circle within a larger circle. And that larger outer circle is the world and the devil. The world and the devil as a spiritual zombie. We can't but follow what this world offers. Mindlessly, lifelessly, insatiably after the world. And the world is hostile to God and His purposes and seeks to keep captive those who are spiritual zombies. The whole program of the world, if you will, its ideas is to take your focus and dependence away from the Lord and put it onto anything or everything else. That's captivity. Think of Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. To be a spiritual zombie is to be in captive, captivity to the world. But not just the world, 
As we see in our Ephesians passage, it's not just following the course of the world, but following the prince of the power of the air, spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So that means there is evil, chiefly the devil, that seeks to capitalize on our zombified world. We know from Paul's last chapter of our book that we're looking at right now in Ephesians chapter 6, we get another glimpse of the reality of this. 6 verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do you feel the weighty oppressiveness of this? This captivity in a world that is bent against God with an evil one seeking to capitalize on it. Do you realize how incapable you are of overcoming either one of them? Do you, you realize the, the nature of all this exists? so as to keep us away from reliance on the Lord. We cannot overcome such a world and such an evil one. That's the outer circle. <laughs> There's an even more intense inner circle of captivity, and that is our very nature, the very core of who we are our heart, our soul, the deepest stuff of us. Note the use in our Ephesians passage as having lived in the passions and desire and by nature. This is deep down stuff. This is way inside of us and comes out in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our words, in our actions. It, it shows up in our lives. This is Speaking to something deep in us, not something we do, but actually who we are. It obliterates the notion that we are basically good. No, we are thoroughly sinful. Every faculty of who we are, our thoughts, our affections, our attitudes, our actions, have this virus. And it shows up in ugly ways, even in comfortable lives. Think of Second Peter 2.14. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. This is speaking to stuff deep down below the surface. And we all have it. These realities, the world the devil, the flesh, they're all formidable foes that we can never, ever, ever overcome on our own. So that imagery in your head of a horde of zombies moving through, you know, Nashua, <laughs> that frightening image speaks to our spiritual condition. Those three things are staggering and they're overwhelming 
But yet there is a fourth. And just when you thought you hit bottom, oh no, there's more. This condition of a spiritual zombie is one that is separated from God, living in active rebellion, in captivity to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And fourthly, and the worst, under the judgment of God. We're by children, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Under the wrath of God, his just judgment for such active rebellion. And that's the worst part of being a zombie, is that we are under the judgment of God. His justice, that is, his wrath is poured out on the world, the flesh, and the devil. God will ultimately deal with all opposition and there is no zombie apocalypse that is more horrifying than facing divine justice or sin. Now, I do all that. I try, I mean, and we could plumb even darker depths than this. <laughs> but I do that for us in our sake to understand how seriously sin is. So that we wouldn't be comfortable with it. That we wouldn't think that we could domesticate it or control it that we would see inherently to it is something that is so insurmountable and so contra God, so evil, something that we have no business trying to fight, like, like at all in the sense of our own strength and our power. We have no hope if we try that. And I want us to feel that and to sense that, to get a grasp of that, so as to then segue right into the second point of our message this morning, that being we take Christ even more seriously. That we take Christ even more seriously. Think about the oppositions that we have in our nature, in our world, in an evil work that is living out in ways that we cannot see, but we definitely feel in this act of rebellion and knowing that left to ourselves, we're spiritually separated from God. Notice, like none of those things we can overcome. Not one of them. We can't do half of the list and Jesus has to do the other half. It's all insurmountable. It's all overwhelming. It's all catastrophic failure. And if it weren't for Christ, we really would be the most pitied people with no hope. Ah. But if you look at the first two words of verse 4, if you know that this passage does not end at verse 3, if you see the fact that, but God does something truly remarkable, oh, more overwhelming than the nature of sin, is the power of Christ poured out by grace, full of mercy and love, so that we would not die under the weight of our sin, but live in the freedom brought by Christ. This would cause our heads and our hearts and our lives to soar because of what God has done for us through Jesus. That as we sink down into the muck and shame and grossness of sin and be horrified by it, that it would provoke us and prick our hearts then to run to what God has provided in Jesus and have hearts that soar in great hope and wonder and worship. And we would take 
Christ even more seriously. In our lives, in our worship, in our daily times in which we set aside to feast on Him, in the ways that we interact with each other, in the ways that we interact in a world that is stuck under a zombie virus. It would move us to take Him even more seriously. Here's the thing. Our hope lies outside of us, not within. Our hope is outside of us. It is found in Christ. And the seriousness of sin helps us then take the seriousness of Christ all the more seriously. It is so compelling. It gives us life to look at Christ. It hope and power to live how God would have us to live, to be His workmanship, to, do out, to live out our lives for good works. In verses 4 and 5, we find that God makes us alive in Christ. In verses 6, we see that God unites us to Christ. In verse 7, we see that God continues to show His kindness to us through Christ. Our hope lies outside of us. It's in Christ. And then to be in Christ is to be inside of hope. So we are to then cast our head, our affections, our very lives, Christward in thought and worship and adoration and in living. To know that all that God would have for us comes to us through the, through the narrow end of the funnel that is the person and work of Christ. And as we receive it, it, it flows back up through that funnel and expands us to, into this life of wonder and worship, life devoted to Him, magnifying His grace all for His glory. So why then is Christ so crucial? I don't want to assume that we all sort of grasp it. It, it, it is sort of the Sunday school answer, isn't it? What's the problem with sin? Or what's our problem? Sin. And what's our solution? Jesus. Well, those answers are profoundly deep. So Christ does some things for us that I want us to take even more seriously. So us to have lives that are shaped and formed to magnify the grace of God for the glory of God. First, Christ breaks the power of sin. Christ breaks the power of sin. Breaks it. The thing that we are in captivity to, the thing that brings death, the thing that causes us to live in active rebellion, the thing that deserves divine justice and just traps us down, Christ is stronger than that and breaks it. If we are in captivity to sin and sunk under the chains of our flesh, the world, and the devil, then we need someone stronger than those chains to come along and to break them because we can never do it. I love in John chapter 12, Jesus was speaking about his death that would come, and trying to help his disciples understand what it was that he was going to be doing in this. And he says these words in John chapter 12, 31 through 33. 
He says, now, Jesus speaking before his, his ultimate death on the cross, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He's taking his life and death and saying, this is how the chain of the world, the chain of the evil one is broken. It is through me. It is through my death. What looks like defeat actually brings theirs. Christ breaks the power of sin. He breaks it. Secondly, Christ does another thing that we have no hope of ever doing. Christ pays the penalty of sin. He breaks its power and pays what it is due. Our sin has a wage and that only our death can pay it. Yet in His death, Christ paid it for us. In His death, Christ paid the wage of our sin, what it was due. And he paid it in full. He paid it so fully, there's nothing left. He paid all the interest, all the escrow. He paid it all. And there's nothing left to pay in full measure. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed Purchased back. Paid in full. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is any, everyone who is hanged on a tree. In his death he paid it in full. There is nothing left to pay. Thirdly, why we need to take Christ even more seriously. Not only does he break the power of sin, not only does he pay the penalty of sin, Christ removes the presence of sin. Christ removes the presence of sin. Two ways in which we need to understand this. One, progressively through what we call sanctification. We've mentioned that before. That's growing in Christ-likeness that occurs over the course of our lives. So that's one way, progressively ongoing work that God is doing in you through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, ultimately, at His return. First, progressively through sanctification. Think of Romans 6.22. But now that you have been set free from sin, so again, it's, the, Christ broke the power of sin, and have become slaves to God, that is, now your life is in service to God, so he paid the penalty of sin. The fruit you get, the things that come into your life as a result of what Christ has done in breaking the power and paying the penalty, leads to sanctification. to Your life growing up more and more like Christ, and its end, eternal life. That is, life and glory. What a verse. Christ rescues you from something pays for all of its consequences, and rescues you to something that you get to experience tastes of in this life and will know it in full measure in the life to come. Take Christ seriously. 
And that life to come, that eternal life that we get to be with God in glory for all eternity is incredible. And, and that is the second aspect in which Christ removes sin is that he removes it permanently at his return. Thoroughly and permanently it is gone. Revelation chapter 22, verse 3. I love this verse. No longer will there be anything accursed. I'll read the rest of it, but just stop there for a second. No longer will there be anything anywhere ever accursed that is stained with sin in its presence in any capacity, anywhere, for all eternity. You and I cannot think of a single blade of grass that hasn't been impacted by sin. There will not be a single blade of grass in all of eternity that will have a hint of sin anywhere on its microfibers or whatever it is. Not one light shadow of sin or its vestiges. No longer will there be anything accursed. What a day. What a day. What a day. And for those who know how Revelation 22 ends, you want to say that too. Yes, come Lord Jesus. Now's great. <laughs> and that day, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And the servants will worship. Take Christ even more seriously. Take your sin seriously. Take sin in general seriously. And take Christ even more seriously. We can't live as God would have us live because of sin. We can live how God would have us live because of Christ. The seriousness of sin is that it renders you incapacitated to live for God's glory. And as a spiritual zombie, you cannot ever reflect the grace and goodness of God. And if you've been rescued and redeemed and brought into God's family, called a treasured son and precious daughter, then live as if you belong to God. Know that this world is at work to give you food that brings death. This means we can't live out the good works that we are saved to by living that spiritual zombie life. By feasting on things that do not foster in us a head and a heart and a life for God, but rather subtly or overtly take us further and further away. If we want to live this good works life that is as we're defining it, living a life that magnifies the grace of God for the glory of God, if we want to live that life and yet still live according to a spiritual walking dead kind of way, we're going to get sick. For what our, our zombie movies and shows tell us, the zombies feast on flesh. You're going to get sick. You're going to get sick eating that way. You're going to have spiritual conflict Spiritual discouragement, spiritual frustrations, and spiritual vomit. I mean to be that like startling. It should be that way for us. We want to live this life that makes much of the grace of God, for the glory of God, then we need to feed on the things that God has given us to feed on. And we can't take sin lightly, 
knowing its goal is death, and it has an insatiable desire for more. Maybe if we all left here thinking about the struggle with sin and our day-to-day living in terms of a zombie apocalypse, how might we live differently? How, we, how might we be more inclined to fight that? If your drive home and the zombie apocalypse that's so fictionalized in our culture actually happens, what are you going to do? Some of you are going to be like, yes, <laughs> you've been waiting for that day. You're all stocked up, ready to go. <laughs> but seriously, though, we live in a spiritual zombified world. What are we doing living in that way? Let us be a people who feast on that which God has given to us, chiefly his grace and kindness through the person of Christ. Let us do so for his glory. Let us take seriously how the pages of Scripture are unfolding this one magnificent story of God who purposed and planned and promised and provided salvation for sinners. How it leads us to see the person and work of Jesus Christ that's fulfilling all of those purposes and promises and plans. How he is our provision. That it would then expand our view of the world around us. That we would see the world around us through the lens of what God has provided us in the gospel. And that we would then be a people who are eager for more grace, more mercy, more kindness, and then are all the more equipped to reflect it in our lives for His glory. Therefore, know this Christ who has done something for you that you would never be able to do. Know this Christ. Through the pages of His Word, feast on this. When you are with each other, whether two or three or 30 or 300, whatever it may be, make much of what God has done for you in Christ. You will never waste time doing so. In fact, you will be drinking deeply from the well of God's grace and feasting to your full and all that he has richly provided you. And know that the world in which you live in may be a zombified world, but you have something greater. You have something greater to give to those feasting on things that bring death. You have words of life to share. Share them. Share them. May we together have an insatiable desire to know, to love, to follow the Christ who is greater than all ourselves. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us in this. So many profound ways we certainly feel, many of us may feel the sense of guilt and shame and regret that comes with the fact that our lives are filled with so many inconsistencies. God, I certainly pray that you would do a good work in us now, that the the main impetus wouldn't just be a sense of guilt, but that that weightiness of sin would drive us to you through Jesus. That we would find then in Christ comfort for our souls, strength for our living, conviction and confidence all the more. God, that we would find in you one who is faithful and true 
and just and righteous and yet pours out grace and mercy. And God, may that then equip us all the more to live for you, to to magnify your grace to the world around us, all for your glory. God, we pray in Christ's name.